the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This live program is sponsored by Tandem HR. I see my name in shiny lights. Yeah. A different city every night. Oh, I, I swear. The world better prepare for when I'm a billionaire. It's time to get down to business on the weekend's number one business program. Known as the king of networking, your host, Shalom Klein, has worked with thousands of entrepreneurs and created countless jobs. So, to success, let's get down to business. And indeed, we are all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship and business. We talk a lot about business here. You're on with Get Down to Business, and I'm your host, Shalom Klein. Remember, you can always download podcasts from Get Down to Business on my website at shalomkline.com. And while you are there... Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Shalom Klein. It's going to be a jam-packed week of content and information. I've got some great guests here in studio with me, and we are powered by our good friends at Tandem HR, your solution center. Give them a call, 630-928-0510, 630-928-0510, or visit their fantastic website with a wealth of information, tandemhr.com. So I'm thrilled, as promised, to be joined by one of those fantastic guests that are with me here in studio. I'm thrilled to be joined by attorney Ina Silverglide, who is the founder of A Bridge Forward. A Bridge Forward um, really is an amazing uh, organization led by an amazing person um, who has helped so many people. Ina, you are a uh, 1990 graduate of IIT, Chicago Kent College of Law, and I know you've worked as a judicial law clerk um, and where you have worked in employment law, but now uh, provides guidance um, to employers on how to comply with the maze of federal, state, and local rules regulating when someone can be asked if they have a criminal record. Uh, that's just a brief introduction to an amazing person. Ina, welcome to Get Down to Business. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Ina, you have a uh, remarkable story, and uh, that introduction did not, uh, did not do it justice. Let's talk about your story and how you went from uh, a more typical law career to what you are doing now. So um, what happened to me, like uh, a lot of other people back in uh, 2009, I lost my job. And while I was looking for work, I also was looking for some volunteer work because I've never been one to enjoy looking for a job, and I wanted to be useful. And in the spring of 2009, I finally found a volunteer opportunity, which I still do today, with an organization called the James B. Moran Center for Youth Advocacy. Back at the end of 2008, uh, Judge Suckerdermer, the chief judge at the Skokie Courthouse, asked the organ- this legal aid organization if they'd be willing to sponsor an expungement help desk, and they said yes. And so I started volunteering at an expungement help desk, knowing nothing whatsoever about expungement, sealing, criminal law, and learned it all and got really interested in the people I was meeting at the desk to the point where I decided that I wanted to 
start working with that population on a full-time basis. And hence, uh, a bridge forward was was formed. And I know you still stay involved and work with other organizations. Let's talk about that as well, because I know you're not alone in your in your quest or in your fight um, to help uh, tell people. The one thing that I can say about the Chicago land area, Cook County, uh, there is a very strong group of individuals that believe in giving people a second chance. And because of that strong group of advocates, we have passed legislation or have had legislation enacted that I could never have imagined in the 10 years I've been doing this work. So I've done some work with the Safer Foundation. I helped um, advocate for some legislation to change uh, occupational and professional licensing laws as it related to people with criminal backgrounds. Uh, I've given presentations at uh, Jewish Vocational Services. They had a program, an entrepreneurship program. Uh, most of the people in that class were people who had backgrounds. Uh, so I spoke to that organ- that group on several occasions. I've had a, um, a longstanding relationship with Center on Halstead. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an, a community organization for the LGBTQ uh, community, and they have a program. I, I'm not sure who underwrites sure. it, but it's a um, culinary program, and many of the people who participate in that culinary culinary program have backgrounds. Yeah. Well, Ina, let's get into the nuts and bolts of that, because we know the reality that uh, very often employers um, regularly, well, ask questions and regularly reject candidates um, that uh, that essentially when they find out that there, that there is a record. Let's talk. Let's let's educate um, our listeners about uh, what the laws are. You mentioned that uh, despite being last in the nation on many things here in, here in Illinois, um, this is actually something that we are actually making substantial progress, no doubt, through uh, through people like you. Let's talk about the, what the law is and where you hope to go. So there are both state federal, and in some cases local laws that regulate when an employer can ask about whether somebody has a criminal history, and then if they, as part of their hiring process, want to do a criminal background check, there are laws that sort of regulate how that process is supposed to play out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have you have state laws and federal laws, and they don't always work hand in hand, and that is an issue that it's a problem, and Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that there's an easy answer to it. So when I say that's a problem, on the state level, we have a state law that says employers are not supposed to ask or take into account arrest record information, but because the the vendors, we refer to them as consumer reporting agencies, are the people that actually collect criminal background information, they're regulated by something called the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And the Fair Credit Reporting Act does not permit them, prohibit them, from collecting that information. Well, I know we don't have a lot of time, but I want to share with our listeners your advice on how an employer, big or small, can legally um, do a criminal background check and evaluate job applicants um, and, again, do it in the right way. So I would encourage employers to instruct their vendors not to collect 
arrest record information. I would also instruct them not to collect ordinance city code violations because those are technically not criminal in nature. Mm -hmm. They're civil. So that would be the first thing I would advise them to do. The second thing I would advise them to do is you need to comply with the Fair Credit Reporting Act. When you get a criminal background back and it's got something on it, the Fair Credit Reporting Act instructs you to provide a copy of that background to the job applicant so the job applicant can make sure the information is, in fact, correct, Mm -hmm. that it belongs to them, because sometimes it doesn't. And I would hope that notwithstanding that background, that you would give that individual an opportunity to provide some more information about the background. So you're not just focusing on what was the, the charge, what was the offense, because there's always a backstory to that offense. And another thing that often happens is people are sometimes overcharged. And the reason why they're overcharged is to put pressure on that individual to take a plea, you know, to plead to the case. And, and so sometimes people are pleading guilty to crimes they actually haven't committed. A- absolutely. So now a bridge forward, you work with, uh, with employers in, in giving advice. Um, and I know, you, as you mentioned earlier, you give a lot of, uh, you, you do many talks on the topic, but you also work on individual cases. And I know that you and I have spoken about uh, some of your work with uh, IDFPR, Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation, in individual cases and helping with the, regu- with the regulatory issues relating to licenses. Can you share any recent success stories without names, of course? I have been working with a doctor client for now several years. Uh, due to a criminal case that was entirely unrelated to his practice as a physician, he lost his license. Um, And at the time, the law was such that he couldn't even reapply for it. And then the law changed, and he was able to apply. And so I've been working with him, as I said, for the last couple years to try and put the pieces of his professional life back together. Uh, He does now have his medical license, but... Unfortunately, they issued it with some restrictions, so we say that his license is on probation, Mm -hmm. and so that still is creating obstacles for him to actually return to the type of medical practice he was engaged in for 30-plus years. Well, I know you you fight tirelessly, and and the work is not done until each and every individual um, has meaningful employment, has meaningful opportunities. Um, I know you're, you're doing incredible work, and I know that organizations, no doubt, um, will seek you out uh, to speak as well as individual cases. So I know I want to make sure that we leave time uh, so people can get in touch with you. What's the best way to reach you? You can certainly find me through my website, which is www.abridgeforward.com. Abridgeforward.com. Ina Silverglide, um, thank you for the tremendous work that you're doing. Um, I hope that our listeners will get in touch with you. And check out your website to learn more, abridgeforward.com. Coming up after the break, I'm going to be joined by another fantastic entrepreneur. You're listening to Get Down to Business, the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. And we will be right back. Welcome back to Get Down to Business, the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. And I'm thrilled to be joined here in the studio by another uh, fantastic individual who, is, uh, who has been working with businesses, um, small and large, for uh, quite a while. We were actually just reminiscing about the uh, 
time uh, about 10 years ago that, uh, that he and I first sat down together over breakfast. And uh, you've continued to work with, uh, with mid-market companies. I'm thrilled to be joined here in studio by Ken Hachikian, um, who uh, is an amazing individual that helps, uh, that helps as I said, mid-market companies uh, with a focus on turnaround consulting, sale assignments, and most importantly, capital raising, the Ivy Consulting Group. Ken, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you. So uh, you have worked with uh, a very, very large number of companies in, I believe, over 75 industries. Uh, your, your focus has always been on helping to raise capital al- along with many other services. Um, let's talk a little bit about the man behind the microphone. Let's talk a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, I, grew up, <clears throat> excuse me, I grew up in Boston, Mass. Um, went to the first public school in the country, founded in 1635. Uh, Harvard was founded in 1636, so believe it or not, there was a relationship between the schools, Boston Latin School. <laughs> went to Harvard College, Harvard Business School, and started my career working for the Boston Consulting Group for nine years doing corporate strategy. Absolutely, and that, uh, that experience, no doubt, uh, led to... Uh, your, your role now, where really you're in management consulting. Um, I know you've served as an interim CEO, COO on many, on many assignments. You've worked with a lot of industries. Let's talk about some of those examples um, of places where you've worked on, uh, on some interesting engagements and some companies that you've raised some money for. Uh, a good example is a company that was a, uh, an aluminum extruder that was 90 days from bankruptcy. Uh, we were called in to fix the business uh, and to prevent bankruptcy and liquidation. We're able to turn around the business. Uh, they owed their banks $9.5 million. Uh, ultimately, we were able to sell the business for and recover $8 million for their banks. If they had liquidated it, they thought they would get $2 million. At least as importantly is that we saved 95% of the jobs for the 350 employees. So it was a success story uh, for the banks, uh, for the employees, and for the people who bought the business who were thriving today. Uh, the prior owner had really lost the business before I got there, and the, the best that we could do was get them off the hook from personal guarantees. Absolutely, and you have an entrepreneurial background, and that's, uh, that's important um, because you've thrown a word around. I've been listening closely to the word liquidity, and uh, I'm curious about that. How do you achieve um, how do you help business owners that are trying to achieve, call it near-term liquidity? What approach do you use in your, uh, in your efforts, whether you're coming in sort of an interim role or you're just advising those business owners? Uh, two key things. One, to figure out what is driving the value of the business. And secondly, who else in the marketplace is going to value that? A good example is a uh, car rental business that was making $2 million a year and the owners were interested in selling it. Uh, I figured out literally in the first 30 minutes that that $2 million was worth $6 million to one of the larger players. And ultimately we got somebody to pay $17 million for that. Oh, wow. It really wasn't a multiple of eight plus, although it was for the business owner, it was a multiple of three for the buyer. Uh, But the business owner, as much as he knew about the business, didn't understand that it was worth so much more uh, to a buyer. That's a fascinating example. And uh, that's something that I mentioned on this show 
virtually every week is that business owners know the business, hopefully know the business that they are in, but often don't know the other areas that that they need to partner with professionals like you, the Ivy Consulting Group, uh, to help them whether they are trying to liquidate, trying to sell, but also it's tax season. Hire an accountant. Do you need an attorney? We just spoke to a fantastic attorney. Hire an attorney. You need to partner with professionals that can advise you to achieve success in the operations of your business, certainly when you're trying to exit or you're trying to grow and you're trying to acquire another company. So um, interesting examples of multiple different uh, industries. Ken, you have been a, uh, a student of the economy, the ups and downs. I know you've been doing this for a long time. What sort of do you see in the economy right now? Um, it's an interesting time, wouldn't you say? And we, I guess sort of guide us through what the next few years will likely look at, look like. Well, for business owners, uh, there will always be cyclicality in the economy. But if you're a business owner looking to secure liquidity, sell your business, uh, one thing that most business owners don't understand is that there is an incredible source of capital out there today looking to be deployed, looking for good deals. Whether you're trying to sell or whether you're trying to buy, uh, there are capital sources, both equity and debt, uh, that are falling over themselves looking for good deals. Now, how do you find them? That's my job. But also my job is to put forward the best story. I'm working with two entrepreneurs right now who are looking to buy a business, and I've helped them negotiate letters of intent with two acquisition targets, and we're meeting this week with the source of capital. Uh, and it's pitching that story and finding the right sources of capital that's the value that I bring to the table. So it sounds like there's two parts to that strategy. Part one is sort of that learning process, that identification process, that consulting process with the um, with the business owner. But also you have been in this line of work for a very long time, and that, that means that you have a substantial Rolodex of contacts that you can turn to um, for that, uh, for that uh, sources of capital. Um, what what's the story of banks these days? Are they are they lending? Absolutely. Um, now, they want to lend against cash flow. You don't necessarily need to have assets. Some businesses are service oriented and don't have a lot of assets. But if you have established cash flow, they will lend against it. Interestingly, uh, the government has a program through the Small Business Administration that will lend money against cash flow. And so it has a limit. It would only go up to $5 million. You have to give personal guarantees. You have to pledge your house. So there are constraints sure. that not every business owner is willing to undertake. But it can be a, a valuable source of capital in situations where banks wouldn't lend. But in general, yes, banks are lending. Uh, private equity firms are looking to deploy capital. The, the, but they, as you might imagine, they get hit with literally – hundreds of propositions, and you have to be able to put forward your story in that such story. a way that it's going to be persuasive quickly. Sure. So, Ken, a loaded question for you, and we don't have a lot of time, but many of our listeners are entrepreneurs like uh, like you, um, but entrepreneurs by their very definition are often dabbling in a lot of different businesses. When somebody starts a business, when somebody has a, an idea for a business, how can they go in starting with the mindset that they want to get out. How can they position themselves, or to use your words, their story, sort of to make sure that they are developing themselves so they can sell 
at the best possible point, wh- where should they begin? So in building any business, you need to create a competitive position that's advantageous. And whether that's because you're delivering value to your consumer or the business you're selling to, you need to be able to differentiate yourself. And most people, you can't create value or gain a, a strong position by selling a commodity. You have to differentiate yourself. So if you're starting a business, how is it that you're different from everybody else? And how is it that you're going to deliver value to your end customer, whether it be a consumer or a business? So it sounds like it goes back to that same answer about the story, uh, telling that story, which uh, certainly is very important. So, uh, Kenna Chicken, um, the Ivy Consulting Group, you've been around for a while. You help, uh, as we said, uh, tell that story. You help to provide that level of advice. You help to raise capital and uh, help owners uh, seeking near-term liquidity. Lots of uh, examples of industries. Ken, I want to make sure our listeners know how they can get a hold of you. What's the best way to reach you? Best way is to just email me, Ken at IVConsultingGroup.net. Uh, consulting with a G and group with another G, so two G's in a row. Uh, you'll get a response back from me in less than 24 hours. Uh, you always I, do respond quickly. <laughs> Let's share that email address one more time. Ken at IVConsultingGroup.net. All right. Well, I appreciate your time, Ken. Uh, thanks for coming in and uh, be sure to uh, stay in touch. I'd love to follow your stories, examples, and successes um, with many of the clients that you've been working with. We are the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. You're listening to Get Down to Business, the show all about business jobs, entrepreneurship. You can download podcasts from the past hundreds of shows that we have had on the air, shalomkline.com. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter. Chicago, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Get Down to Business. We'll be back after these headlines. Welcome back to Get Down to Business. I'm thrilled to be joined by your returning guest, uh, the resident scholar with the Institute for Policy Innovation in Dallas, uh, Merrill Matthews. Um, Merrill, welcome to the program. Um, you have uh, said that the U.S. has become energy independent to such an extent that the world's seventh largest oil producing country and founding member of OPEC doesn't rattle the global supply chain. That is good news because our uh, recent uh, tensions between U.S. and Iran have some people very concerned. Uh, welcome to the program. What say you? Well, thank you for having me. Yes, that's, that's, it's, a, it's an amazing development that nobody would have thought of not long ago. But uh, back when we had tensions with Iran back in 2011, 2012, uh, they were threatening to close down the Strait of Hormuz. I suspect some of your uh, audience will remember. And uh, gas prices shot up to about $4 a gallon. Uh, they threatened here not long ago to, uh, that they might do that. I think that was in the fall. Uh, we've had we've had some ongoing conflicts with Iran, and and I just actually went out and got got gas just a few minutes ago, and it's about as low as I've seen it in a long time. So the uh, because of of the fracking boom in the U.S. and our ability to be able to produce both crude oil and natural gas, uh, the the tensions in the Middle East just do not shake world markets like we like they used to. We are in fact the Energy Information Administration. Uh, said uh, just announced last week that we that uh, in November was our third consecutive month of exporting. Uh, we we actually were were a uh, a net exporter of oil. We exported more than we imported, and uh, 
because of, uh, of our energy, we're, we're reaching energy independence now and maybe even energy dominance. Uh, at, very, very interesting. Energy liberation is essentially defeating the Iranian gas spikes, I guess it would be the headline over here. So uh, a question that our listeners... I, I like that term. <laughs> <laughs> well, a question that, that people are asking um, right now is, with that in mind, why should we care about Middle East affairs any longer? Well, you know, it's a good point because uh, we uh, about a third of the world's uh, oil supply shifts through uh, the uh, Persian Gulf and through the Strait of Hormuz, but that affects other countries, not so much us. And to the extent that we can supply natural gas and crude oil to our allies, even Israel has, has uh, gotten to where it is. Uh, I think it's a natural gas exporter now, isn't it? I mean, they're, they, they've got some large natural gas supplies. So we should, we still want the area to be, um, uh, to be, uh, peaceful and stable. It's not right now. But they, what, what they can't do is they can't hold it over our heads. You know, back in the, uh, the Arab oil embargo, embargo in 73, because of our support for the state of Israel, uh, OPEC and the Middle East countries decided they were going to turn, uh, turn off the spigot for us, and we saw exploding prices and oil, uh, or gasoline lines. And now we just don't have that. So we're not compelled to have to get involved there. We do want stability, but we don't we don't have to do it because of oil. Interesting. So what do you say is uh, the best public policy to ensure that we're never again dependent on foreign countries to supply our energy that has substantial uh, national defense, foreign policy uh, considerations? It's a very good question. I think two or three. Number one, natural gas had never been uh, blocked uh, the export of natural gas, but because of the but the Obama administration slow walked most of the applications uh, to create LNG liquefied natural gas terminals. That's been accelerated now, so we are now doing well there. Uh, President Trump is trying to open up other areas. I'm not sure all the companies need them right now, but being able to have access to them. But the end of the uh, oil of our export embargo that had been on us until 2015, when they ended that, um, uh, and, and the Republicans did that, they allowed the, the uh, uh, renewable energy credits uh, for wind and solar to continue in order to be able to get an end to that uh, uh, ability to export oil. That's created a global market for us, and now if some place is experiencing tension, we might be able, if, if uh We've got uh, other places we can't ship to with a global market. We can ship to almost anybody. I think that encourages producers to keep producing in the United States, which means quantities stay high, prices stay low for us, and they, they have a place to uh, sell their product mm-hmm. if, they can't, if we can't use it all. So I think that is absolutely the right place to be right now. I'm chatting with Merrill Matthews, the uh, resident scholar at the Institute for Policy Innovation. And, uh, Merrill, uh, we don't have a lot of time, but I, I, I talk – uh, with business owners all the time. And uh, we always say you never depend on one client. I, I, what I keep hearing from you is never depend on one country too much. <laughs> I, 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 I do want to make sure we talk about the sort of the topic of the day, which is coronavirus. And right now uh, there's a lot of uh, talk about quarantines. Um, what impact does that have on the subjects we've been talking about, about oil, but also economy in general? 
Right, and, and that has pushed down the prices of oil and natural gas. The good thing about the U.S. Uh, producers is many of them can begin to scale back because it's individuals, it's not a country, whereas Russia has, I think, roughly 40% of, its, uh, of, the, fed, of the government income is, uh, is uh, from oil and gas revenue, and they, they need that to continue with their mischief out there. We can, our independent uh, producers can sort of cut back a little bit. It may put a strain on them, but you don't, you don't create the kinds of problem so we are much more flexible and that's good when you have a crisis like you have in uh, China you uh, have the ability to be able to cut back or else sell in other places so I think both of those are huge advantages that we have now that All right. we wouldn't have had five years ago well Merrill we're gonna have to leave it there Mer- Merrill Matthews Institute for Policy Innovation thanks for joining us thanks for all the insight we'll be back and get down to business in just a minute Hey, welcome back to Get Down to Business. We are powered by our good friends at Tandem HR, your solution center. Check them out online, tandemhr.com, or give them a call, 630-928-0510, 630-928-0510. So um, recently I had a conversation with somebody about uh, phone scammers and how they're changing our relationship with uh, with phones and um it's interesting. I developed a bit of a perspective, which I jotted down, and I, did, I wanted to share it um, with you uh, this evening uh, to talk about when what happens when we stop using phones to talk to each other. Um, so, you know, there's a certain um, I, there's a certain sort of relationship that you have with somebody when you have a conversation, um, and that's why companies uh increasingly i i had to cancel a credit card earlier today you know i i my gut was i wanted to go online and try to cancel that card um just by clicking a couple of buttons but i found as i went through that website um that they said i had to call in and i have to admit that made me a bit nervous um and anxious i guess is the right word um about making the call and even to the point that i almost wanted to almost hold on to that credit card. Um, it kind of caught me a little bit off guard. And so, uh, again, it's it's something that I, I, I want to make sh- sure we shared. So things to consider when you book and cancel appointments. Many companies, uh, if you're talking about a service provider, allow clients to both book and cancel appointments online. But those privacy issues that we're hearing about so often um, on the air and and just in media in general, do impact those procedures that some practitioners put in place. For example, let's say that my doctor is working with me on a diagnosis that is inconclusive. By the way, I'm totally making this up right now. We schedule a series of tests, appointments to confirm, and I choose not to inform my family until I know the facts. Again, I promise you I'm making all of this up. Now, if communication about those appointments are sent to me by text or email, someone in my family might read them by picking up my phone or through a shared email address. For physicians, psychiatrists, professionals, communicating in person or on the phone is a valid and important choice. When phone anxiety takes over and you do a no-show instead of calling to cancel, there are very serious repercussions. And that is really the point of why I'm bringing all this up. So did you know that the average cancellation rate for an office is about 10%? And there's somebody that I talked to uh, just before coming on the air that has a 30-plus-year career. 
This easily represents a loss of $1 million. Yes, I said $1 million. In addition, this individual that I spoke to mentioned that as they receive a call about a cancellation, they can reach out to other people that might be on a wait list. And in an overburdened system that we have right now, that's more and more important. No-shivs are also responsible for many overbooking policies. If you've ever been waiting in a long time in a room full of in the medical field, coughing, sneezing, feverish people, blame it on the no-shows. You are overburdening the system. The actual conversation involved in booking or canceling an appointment can take less than 60 seconds. These offices are often so busy. Again, we're not just talking about medical over here. I'm talking about your accountant, your lawyer. They're so busy, they often don't have time to chat with you or ask you unnecessary questions. They just want you to be precise and be efficient. It's as simple as saying, like, hi, this is Shalom Klein calling. I have an appointment with you tomorrow at 10 a.m., but I'm unable to make it. You can include a reason if you want, but really, honestly, is isn't necessary. You just need to say, can I reschedule for next week? Or you want to say, hi, this is Shalom Klein calling to book an appointment for whatever the service might be. What do you have available next week? Or, hi, this is Shalom Klein calling to apologize for missing my appointment. Yes, we all make mistakes. You can call to apologize. What do I need to do to reschedule? On occasion... Usually when you're with a new client, a new customer, a new patient, um, you may be asked for some information uh, that you have to provide. While I do understand that that anxiety of having that actual conversation is real and can be paralyzing, know that the actual conversation will be less than two minutes long. I can't give you an estimate of how long you might be on hold because that depends on the office and how many people they have working there. But you can usually answer emails while you're waiting. I am an expert on the, uh, on the subject of uh, multitasking. Efficiency is essential in these offices, these operations, and really in business in general. And you will actually be treated with respect. So I hope that you can share this advice with people um, that struggle to make those important calls and also with anyone else um, that can offer more advice. I'd love to hear what you think. Give me a call. I'm here in the studio, 312-642-5600. Get on my website, Shalom Klein. You can send me an email um, through the website and get in touch through social media. I'd love to hear what you think. I know that that phone anxiety is real. Again, I'm, I'm being very transparent with you. I had this scenario happen to me a couple hours ago. I wanted to avoid making a phone call. I wanted to take the easy route by doing it online. But sometimes, you know, offices, for many privacy reasons, they put policies in place to make sure that a phone conversation happens. And it's for their efficiency. It's for the betterment of other customers. And we've all been in that situation. Nobody wants to be uh, sitting in a waiting room with uh, many canceled, uh, uh, with, with many people that are waiting around because offices uh, ha- tend to overbook expecting those cancellations. So uh, I'm curious what you're doing as an office, as a professional, what policies you have in place. I'm curious to hear if you are willing to be transparent with me as I've been with you. Tell me about your phone anxiety. Tell me about those experiences um, that you have had with uh, avoiding or or uh, or canceling appointments. would love to hear what you think. Get on my website, shalomkline.com. That's where you can download podcasts from the past five-plus years of Get Down to Business. I've had on this show 500-plus guests and lots of advice, lots of information for all of you, um, small business owners, job seekers, really for anybody Uh, involved in the world of business. We've got advice for you. In fact, I have a YouTube archive of all of those shows. Check that out online. Just search Get Down to Business. It'll pop right up. We'll be back in Get Down to Business. More advice information for you coming up after the break. Don't touch that dial. 
Hey, it's Shalom Klein. You're back on Get Down to Business. And uh, I know I mentioned this uh, last week, but I'll uh, say it again. It's great to be back here in the studio. Uh, I was gone for most of the past year um, off uh, serving our country in the uh, for my service in the United States Army Reserves. So I'm back, and uh, that means I still have the excuse. I could still say Happy New Year to people, even though it is mid-February. That means that all of you have probably dropped all of your New Year's resolutions a long time ago. But for me, it's still the new year because I'm back home. It feels great. I'm talking to all of you. This is a live show, um, fresh content, information. We had a great conversation with Ina Silverglide, Hannah Hakiman, um, and Merrill Matthews. Um, some great conversations. But um, the advice that I always share with our listeners is network, network, network. And that's the advice at the end of the year. Um, and it's the advice in the beginning of the year as well as a New Year's resolution. Regardless of whether you're looking for a job or trying to grow your business, the advice that I have is network, network, network. Um, and you've heard me say that probably more times than you could possibly count. So you hit the bullet um, and you uh, signed up for a meet and mingle networking event in your field. Now what? As you've probably gathered, networking is much more than just showing up, grabbing some free snacks, and passing out business cards. It's about meeting people, sharing who you are, what you do, and getting some valuable contacts and, and information that you can use in your job search or at work in the future. And to make the most of it, all it takes is a little preparation and practice. So, as I said, it's a new year for me, so I'm going to share some of the advice that I've always put into practice um, before you grab your uh, your purse, your briefcase, and you head out. Before you go, you got to have a goal. Before you get to the event, ask yourself, why am I going? Come up with two outcomes that you hope to achieve at the event. Say, meeting three new people or getting a new job leader. If you're going to reconnect with friends, that's fine too. Know ahead of time what you're hoping to accomplish, and that will help you stay focused, not aimlessly wandering around. Dress to impress whether you're planning, when you are planning your outfit. Pick something professional. You won't make an impression, at least not a good one, if you look disheveled, disorganized, or overly casual. But also pick something that makes you feel good. A great dress or those new shoes you've been wanting to wear will help you exude confidence in what can be an uncomfortable setting. Bring plenty of business cards. This one seems basic, but I can't tell you how many people I've seen forget their cards or just say, I just gave away my last one. Bring more business cards than you think you'll need and keep a stack of them in a card case. That way they won't get dirty or crumpled in your purse or your briefcase and you grab them quickly. It's much more professional to pull out your card out of a case than go searching through your bag. While you're there, make effective introductions. When you meet someone new, introduce yourself by making eye contact, smiling, stating your first and last name, giving a firm but brief handshake. Then listen for the other person's name. Believe me, it's easy to miss when you're nervous. And then use it two times while you're speaking. This will help you remember their name, but also appear sincere and actually interested in the conversation. Listen first and then speak. Here's a networking secret. Let the other person speak first. Most people don't realize this, but the person who talks about themselves first is only being half listened to. If your counterpart is preoccupied with what they're going to say when it's their turn to speak, they'll only, they'll only partially be tuning in to what you're saying. But by asking the other person questions first, they'll be much more relaxed and focused on what, when the conversation turns to you. Show sincerity and interest. Here's a few good questions to have in your back pocket. Uh, asking the other person about their background and work will show them that you're actually interested um, rather than just sort of going through the motions. Best questions are things that can't just be answered by a yes or no. Things like, do you like working at your company? What's your primary role? What projects are you working on? How do you get involved in your field? And get to the point when it's your turn to share what you do, 
fit in just two to three sec- sentences. You can delve into greater detail later on, probably over a cup of coffee, but people will lose interest very quickly if you can't cut to the chase. Similarly, avoid using some of your industry jargons. The key to effective networking is to build rapport. Make sure you take notes. You probably won't remember the important details of every conversation, but it, so it could be helpful to write it down. And remember, after the event, be sure to follow up. A few days after the event, send, send follow-up emails to anybody that you met you want to continue networking with. I just said coffee a minute ago. Make sure you personalize each and every email, letting them know you enjoyed meeting them and something that you want to follow up on. Um, that's some of the advice. Again, it's a new year. It's a new opportunity. Um, you're listening to Get Down to Business. We share advice, information for small business, jobs, and entrepreneurship. That's what the show is all about. We're powered by Tandem HR. Get in touch with them, tandemhr.com. Visit my website, shalomkline.com. To success, let's get down to business. I'll talk to you next week.